everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast from Fulcrum Strategies. I'm Matthew Handley, and with me is our president and CEO, Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you, sir? I am good. I hope you are as well. I am. We've got a couple different things to talk about today. We're going to kind of do a news roundup. It's been a little while since we've done one of those. Coming up, we'll talk about Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan and other payers cutting prior authorizations. We'll also talk about the record high enrollment in the Affordable Care Act exchange plans and a kind of nasty negotiation going on down in South Carolina. But first, Ron, let's start with uh, some of these prior authorization uh, cuts. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan is just the latest of payers to start doing this, including United Healthcare and Cigna. Um, although with United Healthcare and Cigna, they are in the hot seat and have been since March. Uh, when ProPublica published their their expose on those organizations for them denying uh, improperly uh, certain care for certain individuals. Not necessarily prior authorizations, um, but that kind of put it in the spotlight. Uh, are these payers, when they cut the prior authorizations, is that actually going to be helping patients? Well, um, yes, a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, anything where they, you know, they cut the need for prior authorizations helps a little bit. But I think they are intentionally overstating the impact of it. Um, They've obviously gotten a lot of bad press lately, ranging from the ProPublica articles to the class action suits, et cetera. Um, It's catching some attention and they had to do something in response. And so, you know, this isn't isn't somebody going, hey, I'll never drink again. It's, well, I'll try to drink a little bit less kind of a thing. So, (laughs) um, and, and, you know, it's, it, I'm going to, I'm going to remind myself that even though we're we're being recorded, um, I really don't want you to have to go back and edit out a bunch of bad language. So I'll try <laughs> to stay good on this, but I will tell you it's going to be hard because, you know, I read that article in Becker's yeah. and it, in one page, there are a half a dozen quotes from insurance companies that almost made me want to throw up. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I think back, you know, a long time ago, Ronald Reagan said the largest oxymoron in the world is the statement, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. And I think he may have been right then, but I think he's wrong now. I think now it's, <laughs> I'm from your insurance company and I care about your health. Um, well, that's a bigger oxymoron. I, it's interesting because I've got one of my wife's family members works for uh, Ford Motor Company. And he he made a comment to me one time that, he the he works in a division of Ford where they try to find the problems before the government does because when the government finds the problem, they're going to try and fix it, and you don't want the government to step in and try and fix the problem. To me, this looks a lot like hey, we're in the hot seat. The government, Congress in particular, is starting to eye prior authorizations. Let's do something about it before they do. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's designed to to placate the government. I think it's designed to try to. Um, have a response for all the bad press they're getting. And mm-hmm. it's probably trying to placate some of their customers who are going, wait a minute, I'm not sure that I signed up for this. Um, but it's a really weak attempt at all of the above. Um, like I said, this isn't somebody going, I-, I know I have a drinking problem, I'll never drink again. Mm-hmm. It's, well, how about if I drink a little bit less? I still want to drink a lot. Um, but if how about if I cut myself off one drink earlier? Um, and that's just really not addressing the root problem. Well, let me read those three quotes for people so that they they hear them for themselves, and then I'll let you go off on them. Uh, Anne Dosimo, I believe that's how it's pronounced, MD, she's the Chief Medical Officer for United Healthcare. She said in March, prior authorizations help ensure member safety and lower the total cost of care, but we understand they can be a pain point for providers and members. 
Cigna's Executive Vice President, Chief Health Officer, Dr. David Brailler, said, we've listened attentively to our clinician partners and are deliberately making these changes as a result. We continue to hold ourselves accountable for this important work and look forward to building on this momentum in the future. And uh, Dr. James Grant from Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan said uh, that they are trying to uh, enable their organization to move from a world of authorization to clinical decision support. Ron, what exactly is clinical decision support, do you think? Well, clinical decision support is AI. It's automatic denials. It's P- it's PXDX. Mm-hmm. It's having a computer decide based on a set algorithm that something is medically necessary or not, which if that is the way we want medicine to be provided, then we don't need doctors. Right. You know, we can go and sit in front of a computer and you can plug in your symptoms and the computer can spit out um, you know, what they think the most logical course of treatment for you is. Now, the problem with that is, and you'll, you know, every patient knows this and every doctor knows this. Yes, medicine is a science, but it's also an art. Mm-hmm. You know, part of what we get with physicians is experience. Part of what we get is advanced decision making and, and clinical decision making is saying, hey, this looks a little bit different than the last case I saw of this. This might be X, it might be Y. That's why we don't want cookbook medicine. That's why we don't want algorithm driven medicine. But when they talk about, we want to move to clinical decision support. That's just fancy speak for we want a computer to decide whether or not you get care. Right. Um, and that's just wrong, especially when the people running that computer program have no accountability for when that's wrong. And when a patient suffers or dies, then they go, well, it's what the algorithm said. Right. Um, but that's what that is. It's just it's PXDX in a different, you know, wrapper. And that's why Cigna is getting sued out in uh, California. Mm-hmm. I think it is right. Yeah, exactly. Is, you know, just that is that they were massively denying things. And their their answer or excuse was, well, heck, if it's wrong, the patient can always appeal. And and we've talked about this before. You know, that'd be like saying, well, let's find everybody guilty. And and then while you're in jail, you can always go through the appellate route. Well, no, what we decide is there's a presumption of innocence. And Mm -hmm. the physician should have a presumption that they're right, too, since they know more about the patient. Um but yeah, that's exactly what Cigna's in hot water for. I'm not aware, and maybe you are, of any regulation right now, any proposed legislation going on in Congress that would uh, effectively do what you're saying, give, give kind of a presumption uh, of correctness to the physician side. Are you aware of anything like that right now? No, there I, there really isn't. Um, there have been a few attempts at this kind of stuff at a state level, and unfortunately, the insurance lobby's pretty strong, and they've been able to get rid of it. Um and, and I think, you know, as you said earlier, I think the payers are trying to get in front of some possible legislation. I think they're trying to get in front of what is a really bad series of stories that are hard to defend. And so that's why they come out with this drivel like prior authorization helps ensure patient member safety. That is such a large crock of crap that I can hardly believe it. I mean, later in that story, it points out that in a very large survey done by the AMA that... Um, of physicians said that authorization process has delayed necessary care. Mm -hmm. Now, another way to say that has elongated suffering. Okay. And 89%, almost nine out of 10 said that it had negatively affected on patient outcomes. So this isn't a, Hey, you know, I, I need my cholesterol test. And if it gets delayed a week, well, it really didn't affect the outcome. 
This is nine out of 10 physicians saying they have examples right. where this prior authorization delay has negatively affected patient outcomes. That's staggering. You know, I don't think you could get 94% of all the practicing physicians in this country to agree on anything except this. Mm-hmm. So when they talk about it's all about patient safety, oh, no, it isn't. Yeah. It's about money is what it's about. And that's all it's about. We'll have the link to this uh, Becker's Payer Issues article in the show notes for this program. You can find it uh, in the description wherever you're listening to this podcast. The next uh, news topic I want to talk about, Ron, is uh, the Affordable Care Act. And we've talked about it on and on over the on and off over the years. And one of the things that we've talked about, especially going into this election cycle, is that finally the repeal and replace agenda seems to have finally fallen off of the at least the conservative radar for for getting rid of the Affordable Care Act. Um, right now, there's some record enrollment in the uh, in the individual marketplace plans. Uh, and I'm wondering, what do you what does that mean right now for provider reimbursement? Are these plans generally reimbursing lower than a general a regular commercial plan, or is it about on par? Well, it, it, some are reimbursing lower. In some states, the ACA plans pay lower. In some states, they pay roughly the same. Um, but it, but understand what it does to provide a reimbursement. Really needs to you need to understand where these people are coming from. Okay, so if it's somebody who, let's say, is losing their Medicaid coverage because some of the COVID um, policies are starting to wind away and they're going from Medicaid Mm -hmm. to an ACA plan, well, that's actually improvement reimbursement. If it's somebody who's coming from no insurance at all to an ACA plan, well, that's probably a patient that these doctors weren't seeing a great deal of before because they didn't have insurance. Um, Now, if it's coming from a, you know, an employer-based PPO plan, um, to an ACA plan in a state where the ACA plans pay less, yeah, that's probably a drop in reimbursement. I don't think, though, in total, um, that this is going to be a massive change to how providers get reimbursed. Because I think for anyone who's coming from a higher paying PPO plan to an ACA plan, there's probably somebody else that's coming from a Medicaid plan to an ACA yeah. plan um, that'll offset it. Um to me, the bigger question is, you know, why is the enrollment up and what's it going to do to the federal budget? Right. Well, and then to that point, uh, th- this study was done by Kaiser Family Foundation, and now mm-hmm. they did some analysis on some new Medicare data that was released, um, or rather not Medicare data, data from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that they looked at was that from 2015 to 2023, um, it, it, for the first quarter of this year, the amount of people receiving subsidies has nearly doubled uh, since the Affordable Care Act uh, got started. Almost four in five people on individual market plans uh, have a government subsidy. And as you just mentioned, what's it going to do to the federal budget? What does it say also about the state of the economy and the state of, of health insurance in general? Well, like everything, there's a lot of factors in play here, and it's hard to truly segment how much of each factor is is playing here. Um, But what we do know is that um, subsidies have been enhanced. You know, some Mm -hmm. of the policies on fighting inflation, the the Inflation Reduction Act enhanced um, and expanded some subsidies. People take advantage of that. Who wouldn't? Um, You know, that's what subsidies do. I mean, that's why we put subsidies in place for things like solar power in your house or buying an electric car. Mm -hmm. We want to incite 
and induce behavior. Well, it's doing that. Now, we're also seeing some people losing their Medicaid coverage, and they're probably flipping to an ACA plan. Mm -hmm. If you had Medicaid, you're likely to have subsidy on the ACA. Yeah. Okay. It won't be as good a coverage or as good a subsidy, but you'll get something. So, um, and, you know, there's some question about with what's happening with the, the economy and the people who have sort of retired on the job or who are out of the labor force. I mean, unemployment is still pretty low. The labor market's still pretty hot. So I would guess that the biggest reason for this increase in people getting a subsidy has to do with um, them losing Medicaid and the increases in the subsidies. Regardless, what we know is that it's costing the federal government significantly more for mm-hmm. these ACA plans than it was just back in 2015. And that means we're driving up the deficit. The other thing that I thought was interesting from this study, and this will be the last point on this topic, and then I'll have another question, kind of generally summing it up. Mm-hmm. But the number of people on ACA compliant plans uh, has also reached an all-time high. It's about 93% of people who are in the in the, in the individual market are now on ACA compliant plans rather than uh, the short-term plans that you know President Biden has called junk insurance or mm-hmm. some of these other ones as well, off-market plans. Uh, even the compliant ones. What do, what is what do you think about that? That there's now more people are on ACA compliant plans than ever before. Well, I think that was again part of the the desire for enhancing the subsidies. A lot of those non-compliant plans were non-compliant because they didn't meet um, benefit requirements. Right. And and that's usually made up of people who want some kind of insurance, aren't going to get enough of a subsidy to make the ACA work for them. Um, but by a really sort of low cost, low coverage policy. Well, as you increase the subsidies, more of those people say, hey, well, I can get the ACA plan now and it doesn't cost me much, if anything. And so they flip to there. So I, to me, that's, again, another yeah. thing that they were wanting to incentivize is for people to get out of these you know, low coverage, low cost plans and into a, a higher coverage plan um, because now with the enhanced subsidies, they can afford it. Finally, one of the ways the Affordable Care Act was marketed was was to make sure people had health insurance. You know, and and ideally, if you have health insurance, you're going to see the doctor, you're going to go have a primary care physician, and you're going to try and have better general health. Is America getting healthier with more people on insurance? The theory is sound and logical, and I agree with it. Mm-hmm. The proof is hard to do. Yeah, um, it's one of those things where. It's a little bit like, you know, everybody knows about the whole idea of taking a baby aspirin a day if you've got a cardiac risk, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, there are no clinical studies that prove that it helps at all, okay? Logically, we think it does. We know it doesn't hurt, um, and we know that it should help. So, every doctor I've ever talked to said, yep, yeah, I'm pretty sure it does. Now, they can't point to a double-blinded study that proves it. Um, so, I'm pretty sure that having more people on insurance helps with overall health because they get care when they need it. They're more likely to get a screening mammogram, a colonoscopy, pediatric immunizations, et cetera. But there really isn't good data to prove how much healthier we're getting or how much it's saved. Mm -hmm. We'll have that study in the show notes as well, along with uh, what payers are saying about prior authorization cuts right now. In this run, now I want to transition to what I thought would be the the juicy topic for today because it is right in our wheelhouse at Fulcrum Strategies. Um, Although I don't know if we've dealt with anything on this level. But uh, down in South Carolina, Prisma Health, uh, which is not a client of Fulcrum Strategies, I'll make that point, uh, is currently in contract negotiations with United Healthcare, and they recently 
uh, sued to have a restraining order against United Healthcare uh, for releasing statements to the press without giving them notice and apparently disclosing, they're alleging they disclosed uh, Prisma's Health's rate proposals to different media outlets. Um, first of all, one, Ron, is a rate proposal. Does that count as, because uh, United Healthcare said they did not disclose proprietary business information and a judge agreed. Um, do you think rate proposals in the negotiation process count as proprietary business information? Typically, no, they yeah. don't. Um, and, and, you know, Prism Health could probably be um, justified if they um, released what United's proposal was to them. Sure. I mean, typically that stuff is not considered protected under the confidentiality clauses of the contract because they're not divulging very specific rate things that would be protected. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, things got a little ugly. At United is very good at playing this game. Yeah. Uh, they play hardball and they play for keeps. Um, and I think that Prism got themselves a little too far out over their skis and um, started taking some heat for it. Um, reached for the legal route. And, you know, with the information I know, and I don't know all of it, but yeah. I think the judge was right. I think the pro judge probably looked at him and said, well, you know, this isn't confidential. It's not proprietary. If you're asking for an X percent increase, then, you know, um, you should probably be careful of how you word that stuff. And it, right. it makes me think of that, you know, there's some sort of saying about, you know, whatever you put in writing, you should be comfortable with it either being read by your grandmother or on the front page of the paper. And if you're comfortable <laughs> with those two things, yeah. it's probably okay to put out there. If you're not, right. you might want to rethink it. Yeah. Um, I, I know it was, uh, let's see, it was sometime last year, I believe we were talking about uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Mississippi and a hospital down there getting sued, but that was over defamation. How often and what is the result usually when we see some of these negotiations end up in a, a court proceeding, either over defamation or trying to get a restraining order over things like this? It's extremely rare. Um, and I can't even think of pointing to a situation where I know that one got litigated um, to see a judge litigate a contractual dispute. Yeah. And, and almost, you know, and because this isn't a contractual dispute of somebody breached. Right. This isn't, yep. you agreed to pay me X and you didn't. That stuff gets litigated. This is, we're trying to negotiate a contract and I don't like how it's going. Well, most judges are going to say, well, then don't do it. This yeah. is an arm's length transaction. No one's making you work with United Healthcare. Um, if you don't like what they're saying, then don't talk to them. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think it's extremely rare that, that court systems ever, ever resolve these kind of things. At some point, both parties will come to a resolution on this. They almost always do. Um, and the unfortunate part of this is, um, you know, it's the doctors and patients that end up suffering. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's that, that old saying that when elephants fight, only the grass gets hurt. You know, I guarantee you, United's not losing any sleep over this. Yeah. Um, this is, you know, business 101 for them. If you had a client... Um and we'll keep a hypothetical. If you had a client that was um, frustrated that, you know, a similar situation was happening with a payer, what would your recommendation be to that client? Well, I think you've got to understand that this is business. You've got to understand what United Healthcare will do. They're a for-profit company. It's what they, you know, should do for their shareholders in some mm -hmm. respect. And I think you've got to, if you're a provider of care, you've got to play to your strengths. Um, you are a provider of healthcare. If you're a doctor, that means you wear a white lab coat, you have the stethoscope and you save lives. If you're a hospital, that means you have an emergency room. Mm -hmm. You deliver babies, you do surgery. Play up that. 
your discussion should always be about trying to maintain the quality of care that you serve the community. And on the other side is a for-profit insurance company that, you know, maybe the tobacco companies have a lower approval rating, but not by much. Um, and unfortunately, what happened here, it looks like, is PRISM got into Fighting United's Fight, which is to talk about money rather than to talk about quality or patient care. You know, if I were advising a client like PRISM, I would say, you want to start talking about the number of hospitals in this country that are failing and that you have to achieve a certain level of revenue in order so you can stay open for the community because failing means that people can't come to your hospital when they have an emergency. That's the argument you want to have. You don't want to have a money argument. Right. Um, you want to have a care and quality argument. But it's easy to get, you know, dragged into um, the kind of fight that a United or a Signer and Aetna wants to have. And and then you're down into that, you know, and I've, I've been using a lot of old sayings today. I guess I'll keep with the theme of that old saying that the problem with wrestling in the mud with a pig is the pig likes it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what they've done. Right. And that was a huge mistake for them. Well, we'll have this uh, story linked in the show notes as well. And if you come across interesting stories, uh, send me, I don't know, is it still called a tweet, Ron? Uh, if you're on X, I'm not really sure. I don't know um, if it's a tweet, an X, or a send formerly me, known as a tweet. Or yeah, send me a thing formerly known as a tweet over on X, or you can send it to Ron as well. I'm at Radio Handley, and Ron is at Ron Howergan. Ron, real quick before we go, uh, you were speaking, Yeah, I think you're actually the keynote over at the NORM conference. Um, yes. That is the National Organization of Rheumatology Management, and their conference is in San Francisco at the end of this month. Uh, very quickly, just tell me a little bit about your speech. Um, it's really about the future of healthcare. What um, healthcare is going to look like over the next five years, and specifically around the practice of rheumatology. Um, rheumatology is a um, is a practice that is incredibly important if you have one of those diseases. It's underserved. There's a real shortage, um, and these are everybody I've met in that in that field, along with a lot of other specialties, are just amazing people. So I'm really looking forward to it. It is uh, September 21st to the 23rd in San Francisco, California. It looks like registration's still open. We'll have the link in the show notes and go check out Ron's uh, keynote address there at the uh, the Norm Conference. Ron, uh, thanks for sitting down with me today on the Flatlining Podcast. Always, we appreciate it. Thank you. Enjoy it. Enjoy it.